So thank you all for coming to that last all-soul seminar of the term, especially those of you who are MSc students and are freaking out about your essays. Um, it's my pleasure to welcome Prabha Kocheswaran, who's Professor of Law and Social Justice at King's College London. Um, her main areas of research include criminal law, transnational criminal law, sociology of law, <laughs> post-colonial theory, and feminist legal theory. Uh, Prabha has written a number of books, including Dangerous Sex, Invisible Labour, about sex work in the law in India, and has a new co-edited book out this year called Governance Feminism. Her, her work has been recognised by a number of prizes and awards and has been funded by a range of international research councils, and currently she's heading a large European Research Council grant on the laws of social reproduction until March 29th, when we all leave Europe. Um, <laughs> and today she's going to talk to us about the sexual politics of anti-trafficking discourse. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much for your kind introduction. Can you hear me at the back? Yeah. Okay. Great. So thank you all for being here. Uh, and the weather has kept up with us. Um, so my talk today is titled The Sexual Politics of Anti-Trafficking Discourse. And the goal of the paper is actually to revisit the contentious history of the sexual politics of anti-trafficking discourse and to take stock of how it has evolved since the earliest point at which feminists influenced it in the 1990s. So what I'll do today is to give you a quick snapshot of how anti-trafficking law and policy have developed at the international level. And I think it's fair to say that the anti-trafficking field has gone from an early, almost exclusive preoccupation uh, of trafficking with sex work to now addressing exploitation in various labor sectors. So this might suggest a reduced focus on the uh, nature of the work performed uh, with a great, and then a greater focus on the conditions under which the labor is performed. Uh, so that all forms of extreme labor exploitation, whether in sex work or fishing or cotton cultivation, would actually attract the uh, application of anti-trafficking law. Um, so the questions that I pose in this paper are as follows. So almost 20 years since the Palermo Protocol on Trafficking was adopted, I ask whether the broadening of the legal parameters of trafficking to various sectors has in fact meant uh, that legally speaking trafficking is no longer conflated with trafficking for sex work or with sex, sex work itself. Um, secondly, even if legally there is a delinking between trafficking and sex work, does it translate into practices on the ground? In other words, are sex workers harassed less than they were before? Uh, I'm also interested in what this means for feminist theorizing on sex work and feminist mobilizing on trafficking. Um, and I want to ask what it has meant for sex workers themselves in terms of how they understand trafficking and how they have lobbied vis-a-vis -vis the state on anti-trafficking law. Importantly, I'm curious to find out what it has meant for proposals for redistribution within the sex sector to minimize, if not eliminate, the exploitation of sex workers. Um, and I'm also interested in asking what the sexual politics of anti-trafficking discourse tells us about the post-colonial state and the terrains on which feminist sex workers, conservative and left progressive movements engage both with each other as well as with the state. And what alliances are made and where do we find success and where do these alliances fail to materialize and why? Um, and specifically in the context of the developing world, I'm curious to uh, interrogate the relationship between the international and the domestic, because there is often an, an assumption that domestic legal change is largely influenced by developments in the international arena, and I'm curious if this is the case, and if not, what really drives uh, policy change. So these are some of the questions that I want to address 
uh, today. And in doing so, I'm inspired by Elizabeth Bernstein's new book uh, called Brokered Subjects, Sex Trafficking and the Politics of Freedom, where she undertakes what she calls an ethnography of discourse. Uh, and she understands discourse here to mean a constellation of words, materialities, and practices as they coalesce in historically and culturally situated ways, constructing the empirical object under consideration and the social locations in which it is manifest. So according to her, it's not merely a reference to language as separate from the real world, but as organized sets of signifying practices that bridge both. And although I did not actually set out to systematically study anti-trafficking stakeholders in the way that Bernstein does in her superb ethnography. As a feminist scholar of sex work in India, I've actually tracked anti-trafficking policy for several years. And in the past three years, I've increasingly embraced an academic activist role, mobilizing labor groups as well as trade unions to engage with the issue of trafficking and to also lobby uh, members of parliament uh, with a multi-sectoral critique of the Indian government's trafficking of persons bill. And so actually preparing for this talk has given me an opportunity to reflect on some of these struggles um, and the shifts in discourse that I've witnessed at close quarters. Am I, am I going too fast or is it okay? Great. Um, so I'll say a little bit here about the anti-trafficking transnational legal order. Um, now, sexual politics has been core to the framing of anti-trafficking law and policy since the 1900s. Uh, but today I'll speak only to the most recent wave of uh, legislative activity around the issue. So, and some of this you may already be quite familiar with, um, so I'll try to go through it uh, briefly. So, as you may know, since the late 1990s, there's an extensive transnational legal order that has developed to deal with trafficking. And it's built around the 2000 UN protocol to prevent, suppress, and punish trafficking in persons, especially women and children. It's often referred to as the Palermo Protocol. And it supplements the UN Convention Against Transnational Organized Crime, uh, which was also adopted in 2000. Now, the protocol was negotiated within two years, uh, quote-unquote, at lightning speed on the UN clock. This is according to uh, Simmons and Lloyd. Um, and the protocol was adopted in 2000, and it came into force in 2003 and has been exceptionally well ratified by around 173 countries today. Now, if you look at the development of this transnational legal order over the past 18 years, you can discern at least three phases. Uh, a phase between 2000 and 2009, um, which was the heyday of uh, sex work exceptionalism. A phase between 2009 and 2014, when closer attention was paid to labor trafficking, rendering visible the competing frames of modern slavery and forced labor. And from 2014, when legal interventions were framed explicitly in terms of slavery and forced labor. And this began to be enacted at the national as well as international levels. Now, if you look at the first phase between 2000 and 2009, <clears throat> it is a period characterized by what I call sex work exceptionalism. So as we know, trafficking has long been associated with prostitution. Hence, there was no surprise that the pre-existing sex work legal order emerging from the 1950 UN Convention for the suppression of the trafficking in persons actually cast a long shadow over the anti-trafficking regime. So, and this has been well documented uh, that associated actors, both governmental and non-governmental, disagreed fundamentally and along ideological lines on the normative status of sex work and therefore the remit of the crime of trafficking. So Anglo-American feminists occupied a position, a range of positions on prostitution, from neo-abolitionism on one side to pro-sex worker agency, and they played a crucial role in negotiating the protocol itself. And we can find traces of neo-abolitionist influence on the protocol in the very definition of trafficking under Article 3 
of the protocol. So, for example, Article 3 of the protocol, which defines trafficking, lists, lists several means through which trafficking can be accomplished. And one of these means is a term that is quite unheard of in legal systems around the world. And this phrase is the abuse of power or of a position of vulnerability. And um, the, the idea of inserting this phrase, uh, commentators say, in the protocol was to ensure that even women who entered into voluntary sex work would somehow be brought within this more structuralist understanding of what vulnerability is. Similarly, the Article 3 clarifies that the consent of the victim to exploitation is immaterial where some of the means listed in Article 3 are used. And this was again meant, commentators say, to cover even voluntary sex workers who had consented to sex work where their vulnerability had been abused. So we find that in the initial years of the trafficking protocol, trafficking was invariably conflated with sex trafficking and with sex work. And so I term this development uh, sex work exceptionalism, by which I mean the characterization by abolitionist groups who model themselves after 18th century abolitionists of slavery, like William Wilberforce, um, of the sale of sex for money as an egregious violation of human dignity and as exceptionally harmful for women. And second, the overwhelming association of trafficking with trafficking for sex work and with sex work itself. And now again, as you may be familiar, the US had a huge role to play in disseminating this, uh, this model of sex work exceptionalism, um, primarily during the time that the Bush administration was in power, where the US government, which was keen to abolish the sex industry, named and shamed countries through the Trafficking in Persons Report that's issued every year in June under the Trafficking of uh, Victims and Protection Act of 2000. So this had ripple effects across the world where countries felt compelled to specifically target prostitution in their anti-trafficking laws as a way of moving up the TIP report rankings. Now, Western states thus used anti-trafficking policy for curbing sex work and for border control purposes, while emerging economies such as Brazil, China, and India actually narrowly construed trafficking uh, as trafficking for sex work precisely because they wanted to deflect attention from their vast domestic problem of labor trafficking. So according to commentators, a robust sex panic uh, accompanied this first phase of uh, uh, the development of the trafficking legal order. And this has been extensively documented by feminists, both in relation to its historical antecedent, which is the anti-white uh, slavery campaigns at the turn of the 20th century, and its contemporary use to allay fears about globalization through a yearning for a familiar race and gender order, wherein women's migration was sought to be discouraged. Now, um, in the second phase, with the change of administration in the U.S., what we find is uh, from 2009, uh, the State Department in its annual tip report begins to focus on labor trafficking in place of its previous sole preoccupation with sex trafficking and sex work. And we find a combination of the waning of an exclusive emphasis on sex work along with the increased visibility of the international labor organization's interventions on forced labor meant that there was, uh, there was new thinking around the scope of anti-trafficking law. Uh, we find critics of the anti-trafficking framework putting forward what they call the labor paradigm of trafficking and anti-trafficking laws, which earlier defined trafficking purely in terms of sex trafficking, now being defined more broadly to cover labor trafficking as well. Now, from around 2012, we find that trafficking became increasingly reframed in terms of both slavery and forced labor. And as you may all know, a new term was coined by uh, Nottingham uh, sociologist, he was at Hull then, Kevin Bales, namely modern slavery. And the definition of modern slavery has varied over time, but the latest iteration is that it's an umbrella term uh, which covers various phenomena, including trafficking, forced labor, debt bondage, forced marriage, and the sale and exploitation of children. 
So this idea of modern slavery, which actually has no definition in international law, found purchase with several governments. And so the UK passed the Modern Slavery Act in 2015, and there are several other countries which have either passed a similar law or are contemplating a modern slavery legislation. And again, as you may know, the Walk Free Foundation then took this idea of modern slavery um, and it's founded by an Australian mining uh, magnate and philanthropist, Andrew Forrest, who then produced the Global Slavery Index uh, in 2013 and then subsequently in 2014, 16, and 18. And so much like the TIP reports, it really ranks countries in terms of their modern slavery problem. Uh, and we also find that uh, influenced by the California Transparency and Supply Chains Act um, and the Supply Chain Transparency Clause in the Modern Slavery Act, several governments are now traffic, are targeting forced labor in global supply and commodity chains. Now, alongside this uh, focus on modern slavery, we find the ILO staking a claim to leadership in this area by releasing several reports on forced labor starting in 2005 and also updating its forced labor convention of 1930, which primarily focused on forced labor used by governments. So we have a 2014 uh, protocol to the forced labor convention. However, the definitional relationship between trafficking and forced labor is quite unsettled, and uh, there has been a fair bit of contestation around whether forced labor uh, is the umbrella term or whether trafficking is the umbrella term. In other words, is trafficking a subset of forced labor or is forced labor a subset of trafficking? And as if this wasn't enough, the ILO in its attempt to both um, exist uh, through you know, funding from uh, foundations and governments, but also to remain relevant on this issue, has recently joined hands with the Walk Free Foundation uh, to produce the global estimates of modern slavery in 2017. So again, this has complicated uh, the field furthermore because the umbrella to modern slavery now includes trafficking and forced labor. Now, why do these definitions matter? Right? They matter because uh, they make certain presumptions about what trafficking actually is, and they tend to also reflect preferred regulatory pathways. So this is a very sort of simplistic um, uh, portrayal of what these main approaches to trafficking are, but one can discern roughly three approaches. Uh, one is the criminal justice approach, where uh, trafficking is viewed as an exceptional aberration to otherwise normal circuits of commerce and exchange in a globalized world, thus warranting the corrective hand of the criminal law. We then have the human rights approach, which stays within the criminal law paradigm, but it simply seeks to mitigate the harshness of criminal law uh, by bolstering the human rights of victims of trafficking. Um, and, you know, uh, it, there is, it's no secret that governments actually prefer the organized crime frame because this empowers governments with uh, police powers, and partly because the trafficking protocol really arose from the alignment of geopolitical interests of developed countries to police borders in the wake of globalization. Um, the, the third approach to trafficking is the labor approach, which essentially understands the difference between the exploitation of workers and trafficking as a matter of degree, not of kind, and points to the role of restrictive immigration regimes and deregulated labor regimes in producing exploitation and subordination. Uh, and, you know, labor scholars argue that this is, it is these restrictive labor and immigration regimes that actually render workers vulnerable to trafficking. Now, while the criminal justice approach is driven by a mythology of isolated bad apples or traffickers, um, advocates of the labor approach actually argue that it is only by addressing the criminal um, 
argue, argue that addressing just the criminal acts of individual traffickers actually entrenches a politics of exception and in the meantime legitimizes a range of other exploitative labor practices. Now, there's yet another development to this, um, to this uh, anti-trafficking framework, which is the adoption of the Sustainable Development Goals, um, where a specific target, 8.7, is devoted to trafficking and forced labor. And one can find that actually there is a nascent development approach to trafficking uh, that has also emerged, and which I'm happy to talk about um, later. But I think for our purposes today, if we just look at the issue of trafficking, we can see that what started off with campaigns against the forced movement of women across borders for coerced prostitution in the 1990s has today morphed into consumers worrying about slaves, quote-unquote, who wash our cars, do our nails, service our hotels, and manufacture the clothes we wear and the chocolate we consume. So we've seen really a huge shift in the way that trafficking or modern slavery is understood. Um, and correspondingly, the trafficking protocol has spawned a stunning legal and extra-legal architecture, which is expanding as we speak. Uh, the most recent addition being the Liechtenstein uh, Initiative for a Financial Sector Commission on Modern Slavery and Human Trafficking, which was set up in 2018. So it's a very dynamic field. And what is interesting is, despite its prolific development, uh, this particular trafficking legal order has actually been quite poorly institutionalized. So if you look at the rates of conviction under anti-trafficking laws, the numbers are quite abysmal. So I won't go into details on it, but if you look at the successive reports produced by the UN Office on Drugs and Crime, the number of convictions run into the thousands rather than the millions. You know, we are told there are 45 million slaves around the world, but really you find that uh, the, the number of convictions are quite abysmal. And the UNODC itself admits that um, although there was an initial proliferation of anti-trafficking laws around the world, in fact, uh, the way it is enacted has been stagnated uh, at a low level. And these are the words of the UNODC. Now, there are various factors for the poor enforcement of anti-trafficking laws. And I think I've already alluded to some of these, which is, you know, actually, uh, no one is very clear about what trafficking exactly means, um, uh, you know, in the, in the sort of popular consciousness, but also particularly when it comes to prosecutors who are trying to decide what is the threshold before they, in fact, prosecute uh, trafficking crimes. Uh, part of the problem certainly is what experts call exploitation creep, you know, this expansion of the idea of trafficking to cover various forms of labor exploitation. Now, what is interesting, of course, is despite its poor implementation, the nexus between trafficking and the crackdown on sex work remains quite strong, even 20 years after the protocol was adopted. So some countries continue to define trafficking uh, in terms of sex work, like Brazil. There are others that distinguish between innocent victims who are trafficked into sex work and willing sex, work, sex workers who are not legally innocent. This is the case of Romania or uh, countries that equate adult sex workers with children so that their consent is not required for proving trafficking. Uh, of course, we are also aware of the Swedish model, uh, which the trafficking protocol gave an impetus to, and the Swedish model of criminalizing demand for sex work has since become quite popular with many countries um, legislating along uh, those uh, very similar lines. Now, this is the case for the U.S. as well, where in a recent study, victims were shown to have been arrested in 60% of all state-level cases uh, where you know, victims are not supposed to be arrested for trafficking. Um, and many of them were actually arrested for prostitution-related offenses. 
the, it, it's the same case in Singapore where on the face of it, trafficking is uh, defined as extending to various labor sectors, but in reality, uh, anti-trafficking strategies um, identify victims of sex trafficking and undocumented migrants. So even the, the best champion of the trafficking protocol, Anne Gallagher, who's an international lawyer, has recently remarked that um, the trafficking for sexual exploitation receives the lion's share of criminal justice attention and resources in most, if not all, countries. So it's clear that the trafficking legal order remains preoccupied with sex work exceptionalism, if not on paper, at least in practice. And this has definitely precluded laws to strengthen protections for sex workers. Um, now, what makes this association of the anti-trafficking legal order with sex work so enduring? So in her, her new book, uh, Elizabeth Bernstein argues that we need to go beyond some of the initial frameworks to explain um, this enduring association. So some of the earlier explanations uh, referred to a sex panic, uh, uh, which uh, experts argued was the reason why trafficking was associated overwhelmingly with sex work. But what she argues is that a new politics of sex and gender is today brokered by the neoliberal state and is entrenched in right-wing and left-wing spaces and is expressed in religious and secular terms. Um, so what she calls for is a comprehensive theory that addresses the sexual, humanitarian, and late capitalist dimensions of anti-trafficking discourse. So, for example, she theorizes the sexual politics inherent in anti-trafficking discourse in terms of the influence of what she calls carceral feminism. Uh, she explains the humanitarian element in terms of militarized humanitarianism. And she explains the late capitalist dimension in terms of its redemptive role <coughs> in seeming to solve the problem of trafficking rather than being the site of the problem. So uh, it's common to find corporations that are trying to come up with you know, technological gadgets to deal with sex trafficking when, in fact, they are rife with you know, extensive uh, subcontracting um, arrangements and poor labor conditions. And some of these corporations are very cynical about, in fact, wanting to focus on trafficking so that... Um, there is less attention to the kinds of labor arrangements uh, that they have normalized. Now, uh, Bernstein further complicates uh, the thesis of the strange bedfellows, because I think initially, uh, when anti-trafficking laws were passed, there was a sense that radical feminists who had pushed for these anti-trafficking laws somehow found themselves in alliance with evangelical Christians who they hadn't intended to actually align with. Uh, she offers a corrective to this perspective and actually says that there is in fact a more enduring alliance between the two groups and that is in fact facilitated by a rightward shift on the part of mainstream feminists away from a redistributive model of justice and simultaneously often leftward move of younger evangelicals away from polarizing issues such as gay rights and abortion towards a globally oriented social justice theology for which trafficking is the ideal poster child. And when we think of militarized humanitarianism, I think as the name suggests, it refers to neo-colonial humanitarian interventions in the global south, where undercover raid rescue and rehabilitation missions are used routinely by Western anti-slavery crusaders to save third world women from third world men. So uh, this, you know, this explanation for the enduring association uh, between trafficking and sex work is quite compelling, I think. Um, what I'm interested in is if this complex alliance of social actors and their ideologies derive at least some legitimacy from their international inventors, what then sustains these projects abroad? So Bernstein in her book actually has a chapter on uh, 
what she calls the travels of trafficking. And there she actually looks at reality tours which are arranged by NGOs in Thailand. And this is one of the places that she visits um, and, you know, where Western tourists are taken to trafficking hotspots. Um, and certainly her description of the tours sound like the tours themselves are quite selective. They're quite haphazardly organized, in fact. And they're put together with limited, very limited interactions with local communities that actually deal with uh, trafficking. And there is definitely no interaction with sex worker rights groups. Now, while we can see how the hegemonic Western anti-trafficking discourse is reinforced by such charity tourism, I argue that we need a fuller explanation for the socioeconomic and political edifice in the global south that actually permits its perpetuation. So in my view, I think we need a fuller account for the transnational mirroring of Western anti-trafficking discourse. And for this, I offer uh, some insights using the Indian experience. And although we don't have this, the same kind of tourist linkages and trafficking reality tours in the Indian context, I think it's worth exploring the resilient links and pathways of global governmentality that anchor the sexual politics of anti-trafficking discourse today. So before I speak specifically to the Indian context, I want to elaborate on my starting points, which are slightly different from those of Bernstein. So I've been part of a recent collaborative project on governance feminism, where um, and we, we have a co-authored book, which we uh, refer to, as well as a co-edited volume on governance feminism with, with case studies from around the world. And in this book on governance feminism, we actually noted several of the trends that Bernstein observes on the emergence of carceral feminism and the feminist turn to criminal law solutions to intractable problems of gender inequality. However, we also found the concept of governance feminism um, uh, to capture more fully the influence of feminists in policy circles beyond criminal law initiatives and extending to reform in various other areas of the law, including constitutional law, family law, law and development, corporate law, and employment law. Further, while castral feminism captures the role of feminists vis-a-vis -vis state policy, I think governance feminism speaks more broadly to the influence of feminists beyond the state or you know, corridors of state power to include their influence on institutions and even popular culture. So I think capturing this dimension of feminist influence helps us assess the workings of governmentality and how even traditionally powerless groups like sex workers can also sometimes uh, find pathways within these workings to every now and then exert influence in policy circles. And I'll, I'll speak about this um, uh, later in my paper. Um, I think what is also a point of departure from what uh, Bernstein has written about is that in many contexts, and this is certainly true of the Indian context, um, is that governance feminism does not always emerge only from civil society. In fact, the Indian state is a site for uh, what is referred to as state feminism. So the Indian state in the 1970s, in fact, embraced the project of gender, of gender equality by setting up a department for women and child development, which is now a full-fledged ministry, uh, alongside a national commission for women, as well as state commissions for women at the provincial levels. And the role of these commissions, which were expert you know, bodies on gender issues, was that they often set the default policy on a given issue of gender inequality. So we can think of this in terms of state feminism. So we need, uh, we need uh, an extended vocabulary to look at both governance feminism and how it interacts with state feminism in producing the sexual politics of anti-trafficking discourse. Um, and I think I also want to add to the conversation 
um, Empatha Chatterjee's thesis on civil society and political society, which I think is quite useful in trying to understand the relationship between how Indian feminists have lobbied for law reform and how sex workers have uh, lobbied for law reform, or rather fought back against these efforts. So, uh, very simply, uh, Chatterjee talks about how civil society is a restricted sphere within which, you know, elite citizens engage as uh, rights bearers with the state, whereas political society is the realm where heterogeneous population groups engage with the state uh, in the realm of welfare governmentality. So they may be engaged in uh, various legal activities which doesn't allow them to, in fact, engage with the state as citizens, but they are nevertheless crucial for maintaining the legitimacy of the post-colonial state. And I think there's another point of departure from uh, Bernstein's thesis uh, is the role of neoliberalism and of late capitalism and what role they may play in sustaining anti-trafficking discourse. And while it's true that the Indian state promotes neoliberal capitalist policies, um, I think the trajectory of how it's developed is quite different. And uh, Nainika Mathur is here, and she can speak very eloquently to this, and I've drawn a lot from her work. Um, you find that it hasn't quite developed at the same pace and is faced with uh, a social and political context uh, that does not let it advance uninterrupted. And in fact, often produces quite counterintuitive configurations. So for example, while Bernstein talks about the neoliberal capitalist policies which accompany a retreat of the welfare state in the Western context. In fact, in the Indian context, the welfare state is growing rather than receding. So this is an element of Bernstein's argument that doesn't quite relate uh, directly to the maintenance of this hegemonic anti-trafficking discourse, but there is another dimension of it where when we talk about a development approach to trafficking, maybe um, uh, we could discuss further. So what I want to do now is to set out actually some of the, introduce to you actually the key players in the Indian context who are active on, on trafficking. And one can think of two broad categories. We have sex workers groups and then we have groups that are not made up of sex workers, just to be very, very simplistic. Now, sex workers groups uh, in India draw on materialist feminist thinking and uh, in conceptualizing sex work as a form of reproductive labor. And they're organized in various ways as collectives, as trade unions, as community-based organizations, or simply NGOs that provide services to sex workers. Now, the non-sex worker con constituency, on the other hand, is quite varied. It consists of feminists within the Indian women's movement. Uh, it consists of Marxist and materialist feminists. Uh, it consists of anti-trafficking feminist NGOs who are who uh, espouse a radical feminist ideology. And then you have anti-trafficking NGOs which are not necessarily feminist. And it's this interplay between these various actors that produces uh, a certain version of anti-trafficking um, discourse in the Indian context. So, you know, I won't elaborate too much on what the Indian women's movement is, uh, except that it, uh, it in the 70s and 80s, it sought to be autonomous, both in a political sense from, um, you know, leftist parties, uh, and also wanted to be financially independent from external and project-based funding. Now, what is interesting about the Indian women's movement is that it has crafted uh, an indigenously radical materialist feminist politics on the issue of violence against women. And this becomes important later, as I'll uh, illustrate. And the, the movement has actually heavily lobbied for statutory law reform in the areas of rape, sexual harassment, and domestic violence. But very interestingly, um, it has historically ignored the quote-unquote prostitution question, and consequently the issue of trafficking. 
and I'll return to this later. Now, if you look at new abolitionist NGOs, again, as I said, uh, they could be feminist. Um, and an example of such a radical feminist uh, abolitionist NGO is Apneyap, uh, which claims to be influenced by Gandhian thought, uh, but is keen to abolish sex work through raids, rescue, and rehabilitation, and importantly, the targeting of male demands. So this is one of the NGOs that really does, uh, has a lot in common with the castral feminists that Bernstein alludes to. And Apneyap has over time hosted influential Western feminists in India, such as Catherine McKinnon, Janice Raymond, and Gloria Steinheim, who have repeatedly called on the government to adopt the Swedish model to eradicate sex work in India. Now we have neo-abolitionist NGOs um, who are not necessarily feminist. And these include NGOs like uh, Prajwala, Prerna, Shakti Vahini, and importantly, a, a child labor group called Bachpan Bachao Andalan, which is headed by Kailash Satyarthi, who won uh, the Nobel Prize in 2014. Now, their feminist credentials are unarticulated, but they are opposed to sex work, uh, possibly persuaded by a cultural nationalist and a socially conservative politics, which seeks to protect the dignity of Indian men, uh, women and children. And many of these NGOs have actually worked very closely with the UNODC, and they are quite committed to... Uh, a criminal, uh, a crime control paradigm of trafficking. So very much interested in raids, rescue and rehabilitation and, um, you know, keen to uh, reiterate that in a country of India where there are millions of people uh, who are uh, extremely exploited that in fact we should use the criminal law to target the worst forms of uh, labor exploitation. Now, I want to say a little bit about the Indian trafficking uh, policy landscape, which I think um, has a lot in common uh, with other common law jurisdictions. Uh, I won't go into the details of the laws unless absolutely necessary, but you know, most countries in the world have you know, a penal code um, or, or, or some sort of general body of criminal law which has anti-slavery and forced labor provisions like we do. Um, uh, and then most countries also have an anti-sex work criminal law. Um, and in the Indian context, we had a law in 1956, um, which was later amended in 1986, but it fundamentally conflates sex work and trafficking. In addition, we have a range of labor laws, actually, which very much dealt with what we would think of as trafficking today, you know, uh, 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 typically dealing with bonded labor or contract labor and interstate migrant work. So often, you know, given the size of uh, the country, you know, and the hundreds of millions of interstate migrants, you'd often have migrants from a less developed part of the country traveling to a more developed part of the country, didn't speak the local language, was paid far less than the local workers were, and, you know, was bas were basically duped into undertaking that work. So we would call that trafficking today, but these labor laws did not think of them as, as trafficking, but we can think of it as being, as dealing with um, uh, the social phenomenon of trafficking. Now, um, so I'm going to start off from the 1950s. As I already said, uh, in the 50s, we had uh, an anti-sex work criminal law, which sex workers resisted by constitutionally challenging right, and had very little success. Um, and like most anti-sex work laws in the common world, um, the anti-sex work law does not criminalize the sale of sex per se, but actually criminalizes all activities necessary in order to perform sex work. And again, not uh, surprisingly, it is used disproportionately to prosecute sex workers rather than exploitative stakeholders in sex markets. Uh, so sex workers end up doing more sex work to pay off their fines. The police also engage in extensive rent-seeking behavior through bribes. Um, and as a result, 
the the ITPA as it's called or the Immoral Traffic Prevention Act undermines sex workers economic bargaining power uh, within the sex sector now in the 1980s so you you have this law uh, but then in the 1980s something changed for sex workers with the discovery of hiv there was a lot of hiv prevention funding which made its way into the developing world and this actually provided an impetus for sex workers to organize and so starting in the early 1990s sex workers organized locally but very soon they came together uh, in the form of the national network of sex workers in 1997 and what is very interesting is that sex workers groups did not litigate and they certainly did not mobilize to repeal the ITPA rather their relationship with the state is best captured by one of the calcutta based sex workers groups uh, which used the metaphor of shield not sword so when they thought of the law they thought of it as a shield Uh, they saw the law as fundamentally ineffective in addressing their most pressing concerns which was stigma and harassment by the police they instead negotiated with the state and political society uh, and so they would often fashion themselves as day laborers as needful as people living uh, below the poverty line and as workers in the unorganized sector because these were the various areas in which the indian state had actually provided welfare policies for various population groups um and alongside this since the mid 1990s as i've already mentioned um we have institutions of state feminism so we had the national commission for women and one of its very first tasks was to produce um a position paper on sex work and so very early on the national commission actually was committed to abolishing sex work and this then became the indian state's default policy on sex work but actually there wasn't any move to amend the itpa instead there was some public interest litigation by supreme court lawyers and there's some half-hearted attempt on the part of the state to produce a plan of action which again treated sex workers as quote unquote economically weaker sections of society so it gave benefits such as housing health and education but really did not broach the question of say decriminalization uh, decriminalization or protecting sex workers from prosecution under the itpa now frustrated by this lack of legislative action a lot of the neo abolitionist ngos like prajwala and shakti vahini then undertook public interest litigation uh, and they were assisted in this by liberal local standard requirements and so they began to demand prosecution of traffickers they wanted a victims uh, protection protocol they wanted better conditions in rehabilitation homes and in rescue homes and so what happens is you begin to see these public interest lawsuits emerge all over the country they soon became repeat players both before the supreme court and the delhi and bombay high courts and courts began to respond by directing the executive to formulate plans for rehabilitation very well meaning uh, but what what happened here was that in the process this facilitated partnership between new abolitionist ngos and the police on the ground in raid and rescue operations so we find that these early writ petitions actually laid the foundation for continuous monitoring of the executive by courts Uh, for over a decade and this led in turn to uh, the creation of several expert advisory bodies now of course internationally we find that with the adoption of the palermo protocol in 2000 and the release of the us tip reports india begins initially does well under the tip reports but in 2004 is downgraded to a tier 2 watch list and then you become you are at risk for losing uh, aid from the us government and it was in response to this degrading 2004 that the department for women and child development proposed to amend the itpa to criminalize customers of sex workers in effect you know uh, operationalizing the the swedish model 
But interestingly, the bill was defeated because of disagreements within the union cabinet. And this is where I think uh, we find simultaneous flows of, of international funding for HIV prevention on the one hand, but also for abolitionist activities. So what really happens is that the health minister disagrees with the home minister on adopting the Swedish model and is worried about the negative effects that the Swedish model might actually have on HIV prevention projects. So in 2005, this Swedish model is warded off. But we find a whole new set of new abolitionist NGOs who find actually litigation to be a very useful strategy. So we find Apne Aap and Bachpan Bachao Andalin also then setting up, uh, assisting the executive in setting up various specialist state agencies. And they become very heavily involved in drafting operating protocols, um, you know, when rescuing and rehabilitating traffic persons. So what this means is that over time, this, the executive came to rely heavily on these very NGOs as experts on trafficking, so that whenever the state required assistance in drafting a new law, they drew on the expertise of these NGOs. So what we find is this: the state is so governmentalized that actually it becomes an open site. It's very porous to the influence of new abolitionist NGOs. And of course then what happened was that in 2012, uh, when the rape and murder of Jyoti Pandey happened uh, in Delhi, these abolitionist groups actually found an opportunity for lobbying on trafficking. So what is fascinating is that the second longest chapter in the Verma Committee report, which was appointed after her murder, um, the longest chapter in the committee report after rape was on trafficking, which is extraordinary, really, because you know trafficking was never uh, on the horizon for the Indian women's movement, so it was quite surprising to find that in the report. And the committee very interestingly recommended an anti-trafficking offense that was actually modeled on the Palermo Protocol, but which conflated sex work, voluntary sex work, with trafficking. And this was welcomed by... Uh, Bachman Bachawa Andolan and Apneap and ironically Indian feminist groups because in fact they were quite they were caught on the wrong foot when it came to the issue of trafficking. And it was only when uh, sex workers groups, especially the National Network for Sex Workers, protested that the Verma Committee withdrew this particular recommendation. And we then had a standalone trafficking offense in the Indian Penal Code which simply mirrored um, the Palermo Protocol definition of trafficking. Now, on the heels of this reform, uh, what we find is uh, one of the public interest lawsuits which had been filed almost a decade ago comes alive in the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court dismisses it on um, the assurance of the Ministry of Women and Child Development that they'll actually draft a comprehensive legislation on trafficking. And so this then led to the introduction of the trafficking bill, which was passed in the lower house of parliament in July 2018, but has since lapsed because it wasn't presented before the upper house uh, of parliament. Now, there couldn't be a better statement uh, or better channeling of new abolitionist thinking on trafficking than the 2018 trafficking bill. So ignoring a very long uh, uh, history of dealing with uh, trafficking through a labor law lens, in fact, the 2018 trafficking bill is a draconian piece of legislation. It entrenches a classic raid rescue rehabilitation model. And it has a criminal law system uh, that has stringent penalties, reversals of burden of proof, forfeiting traffickers' assets, and an extensive surveillance machinery that's meant to prevent trafficking. Uh, and it has various aggravated uh, trafficking offenses that then extends to bonded labor, forced labor, marriage, begging, and so on. 
so these are all forms of exploitation which are not listed in the trafficking protocol, but many countries have actually expanded uh, uh, the remit of, of trafficking. And these offenses are cognizable, they're non-bailable, and it's quite perplexing that the bill focus on, focuses on rescue and rehabilitation because existing homes have historically proven to be ineffective. And in fact, last year there was a, there's a scandal around these shelter homes all over the country uh, where children were found to uh, be sexually abused by the very people who ran these homes in Muzaffarpur. And this has now led to a whole... Um, uh, investigation around uh, shelter homes all over the country. And in fact, all the expert state commissions um, on women have have actually expressed their disgust for these shelter homes. They're nothing but, you know, brothels by another name. Nevertheless, the bill uh, focuses on setting up or using existing shelter homes. Uh, most importantly, the bill does not repeal the anti-sex work law, nor does it deal with any of the other labor laws on bonded labor. So the relationship between these various laws is quite unclear. What is interesting is that it uses many of the techniques in the ITPA, such as, you know, which were all developed in the context of sex work, such as raids, rescues, and rehabilitation, but also shutting down brothels, you know, which is, uh, uh, there are provisions in the ITPA for it. It simply transports them to all the other sectors of work. So in the context of bonded labor, it actually, uh, one could imagine a workplace or a factory being shut down because the ITPA model is being used uh, in the proposed trafficking bill. So the letter and spirit of labor law is entirely missing in the bill, which really only channels the ITPA. Um, so how does one begin to analyze, you know, these decades of lobbying for an Indian anti-trafficking legislation? So I want to reflect a bit on what the various stakeholders did in this context and to qualify some of the assertions that Bernstein makes about uh, the the continuing focus um, on sex work in anti-trafficking discourse. So uh, the first issue around castral feminism or governance feminism. Now, it is actually true that feminists within the Indian women's movement have increasingly relied on criminal law. And in, you know, in the book that I mentioned on governance feminism, I have a chapter there which actually maps how Indian feminists over the past 35 years, in fact, in the context of rape law reform, have relied um, increasingly on criminal law, how they've become deeply committed to a highly gendered reading of sexual violence, and how they have a diluted oppositional stance vis-a-vis -vis state power. So, you know, if you think of women's movements being outsider movements with protest rallies and so on, this wasn't the case in the lead-up to the rape law reform. Uh, in fact... Uh, feminists were a crucial part of the lawmaking process and several provisions on rape law in fact came from feminist demands and the state in fact was also receptive to many feminist ideas. Interestingly however on the question of trafficking and sex work uh, there was already uh, intense feminist polarization on this question and because uh, I argue that Indian feminists within the women's movement were materialist feminists. Um, they were quite ambivalent uh, uh, about sex work, and um, so it's it's a it's a com the deep ambivalence. I think is informed by a radical feminist resistance to the promotion of the rights of sex workers because they actually view sex work as abhorrent. At the same time, they're materialist feminists, so they remember that actually these women are in the grip of capitalist patriarchy and therefore they have very constrained livelihood options. Therefore, they refrain from reaching out for the criminal law to abolish sex work, unlike, say, American radical feminists who have spearheaded end-demand campaigns despite 
the adverse consequences this has for sex workers. So their reluctance to engage on the question of sex worker trafficking produced a vacuum in the policy space, which was then occupied by new abolitionist NGOs. Um, but interestingly, the, the feminists in the women's movement did lend sex worker groups their support when they wanted to. Uh, they wanted the Verma Committee to track back on their conflation uh, between uh, sex work and trafficking. And this is quite interesting because I think this ambivalence allowed them to develop, you know, empathy for sex workers' demands rather than have a very rigid, uh, moralistic response to the question of sex work. Now, the vacuum created by the um, Indian women's movement was filled rapidly, as I've shown, uh, by neo-abolitionist NGOs. Um, And these NGOs interacted with the state in various spheres. So they engaged with the state through litigation. They collaborated outside the courtroom at the micro level uh, with local state functionaries, including the police, district magistrates, anti-human trafficking uh, units, and children's welfare committees. They participated in expert bodies. So literally every expert body that the government has set up on trafficking in sex work, you will find abolitionist NGOs, the very same abolitionist NGOs repeatedly featuring on these expert bodies. So they not only petition the state, but they also work alongside the state and within the state. So one could really think of them as occupying the elite sphere of civil society in Chatterjee's terms. And I mean, and this is not... um, you know, there, there have been fissures in this alliance between the radical feminist groups and some of the conservative NGOs, especially once the leader of the Bachpan Bachao Andalan recently spoke at, a, at an RSS rally. But it's not that fissure has not really fully um, become explicit. But it is a very uneasy alliance. Now, thinking about sex workers groups, so initially, uh, you know, as, as, as I've already mentioned, sex workers have always experienced state law as abusive. So where feminists were arguing for more criminal law to deal with the problem of violence, for sex workers, the law itself was the problem. So they were never really, the law wasn't a default option for their lobbying. And in fact, uh, in protest marches, for instance, in 2005 against the amendment to the ITPA, DMSC routinely enacted a gallows scene where the noose of the ITPA was shown as being around the neck of a sex worker who was dressed as a prisoner. So this is really their orientation towards the law. So they they did not litigate, uh, you know, they didn't really resort to, and as I've already shown, they really operated in political society, and it was very unclear uh, what effects their lobbying would actually have because they were at the receiving end of you know, the brutal violence of the police, but they were also exposed to the state's softer discursive power through HIV prevention projects. Uh, So either way, they were quite reluctant to rely um, on the law. And so in 2005, they managed to avert the Swedish model simply because they were, you know, uh, they were promoting safe sex through HIV prevention programs, and if they were criminalized or their customers were criminalized, those projects would go nowhere. And in 2013, they had to align with feminists from the Indian women's movement to really pressure the Verma Committee. So, but what has happened is, interestingly, they have also grown in stature uh, and in influence. So in 2018, when the trafficking bill was proposed, one element of the sex workers' movement actually reached out to a prominent opposition MP, Shashi Tharoor, to directly lobby the the minister, Menaka Gandhi. And so this had quite mixed results, actually. But it's testament to their growing influence. Um, So we find that these alliances between civil society and political society are possible, and sex workers' groups would fluidly move uh, between the two of them. Um, 
But just as they became closer to centers of power, it seemed that they had also lost some of the edge of the protest politics from a decade before. So in 2008, they had protest rallies all over the country. Even they had a protest rally in parliament. Whereas this time around, we didn't find protest rallies. And in fact, the impetus for public mobilization came from the transgender rights movement. Because at the same time that the trafficking bill was being uh, presented in parliament, a transgender rights bill was also uh, produced. And transgender groups um, uh, rallied both against the trafficking bill as well as the transgender bill. So, um, so you know, so it's, it's quite interesting to see how these various constituencies have, uh, you know, influenced the policymaking process. And on the face of it, if we go back to the state feminists or to the rulers, which is the government, it's easy to dismiss the passage of the trafficking bill in the lower house as simply a show of strength for the abolitionists. Because after all, every influential Indian abolitionist had the year of the minister. Uh, and the opening statement of the minister in parliament when she introduced the bill referred explicitly to cases of sexually brutalized women and children. But what is interesting is that um, if you look at the media statements leading up to the passage of the bill and soon after, one finds certain pragmatic concessions that the minister made to sex workers in the interest of diffusing their objections to its passage. So this, again, is testament to sex workers' power. So I'll just give you a few examples. So in, you know, and here I'm analyzing the, the debates in parliament over the trafficking bill. Um, so when Shashi Tharoor criticized, he channeled the criticism of the sex workers' groups against the trafficking bill, the minister, in response to him, assured the House that voluntary sex work would not be affected by the bill. Uh, so she claimed that sex workers were invariably penalized, whereas traffickers were not, that in fact the bill adopted a compassionate view of people who had become victims in the sex trade. Uh, so I quote here, so she says, uh, in Parliament, absolutely, there is no question of harassing them. The bill focuses on a victim. If a voluntary sex worker is not a victim, has not been trafficked, has no one to blame for his or her problem, or other ones like TGs, transgenders, then there is no question of my harassing them or the police having anything to do with them. The bill is not intended to facilitate or to harass sex workers. And we find that another ruling party uh, MP who also responded uh, to Tharud was more explicit in her condemnation of voluntary sex work. And so she actually talked about how no, no one would enter sex work if they had a choice and none of us would want our children to actually become sex workers. So she was categorical that sex work could not be a profession. And so it's interesting there is a dialogue between these two women in parliament. Uh, and the minister then derives on um, the other MPs' comments and then says, actually, the only way to help women is to crack down on organized crime in red light areas. So it's this very ambivalent position of going back and forth um, on the question of voluntary sex work. And so it, it's clear that the position of the government was to support the sex worker, but not the sex industry itself. And a few days later, which is again very unusual, the minister wrote an op-ed in a leading newspaper and again clarified that, in fact, uh, voluntary sex work would not be affected by the trafficking bill, but, but that, in fact, the trafficking bill was giving sex workers the option for rehabilitation if she wished to discontinue sex work. And she urged sex workers groups to, uh, to recognize the value of this choice in the lives of the people that they work so hard to defend. So, uh, and this, this thread of trying to say that, in fact, the trafficking bill doesn't deal with voluntary sex work, but at the same time, uh, rehabilitation is a right that's present, provided by the trafficking bill, reiterates itself. Um, 
So in another similar op-ed by an abolitionist, um, there is some concession to the fact that, in fact, women may have some agency. But really, uh, this this commentator argued, uh, an abolitionist commentator argued that uh, a sex worker may have some agency, but actually she's suffering under false consciousness. So you see some of the radical feminist objection, uh, you know, critiques of or objections to sex worker agency being rehearsed in these debates. So what is interesting about these arguments is that they're not novel in any way. I think pragmatically it's quite clear that it's the growing influence of sex workers' influence that the abolitionists and the government is trying to push back on. Uh, But in fact, the position of the minister um, is a a position that's quite, uh, uh, there's a long lineage to it in the Indian context. So even when the anti-sex work law was passed in the 1950s, um, it was in fact drafted by women from the nationalist movement who all along understood that they couldn't in fact criminalize the sex worker who was a victim of economic circumstance and whose freedom of occupation was actually protected by the constitution. Instead, they never focused on penalization. They always focused on rehabilitation. And so this paternalist politics of elite feminists actually continues um, today. So what is interesting about this feminist argument is that it tries to uh, produce what I call the middle ground feminist position. And it's not confined to Indian feminists. Feminists all over the world actually have tried to you know, argue that you have to embrace the contradiction of abolishing the system while empowering the practice, of supporting the right of sex workers, uh, rights of sex workers, but not the right to sex work, of supporting the empowering practices of individual sex workers while being against institutional prostitution itself. Um, so, you know, there is there is this sort of contradictory hybrid position that has um, uh, long been uh, prevalent in feminist politics, which um, the state feminists in the Indian context were simply channeling. Um, so what is problematic about this middle ground feminist position that actually it is impossible to operationalize in policy terms? Because how can one detract from the commercial aspect of the sex sector without hurting sex workers themselves? Uh, And how does one respect the rights of sex workers without indirectly supporting the system of sex work? So actually, it's quite impossible to reconcile these two positions. And I think this is why there is a slippage between the statements of the minister and her more obviously abolitionist counterpart, um, the MP in parliament. Right. This is the this is the only explanations through which we can see that both statements are consistent. And in a more technical sense, a legalistic sense, it's quite what is interesting about the anti-trafficking bill is that there's a displacement of attention from the anti-trafficking from the anti-sex work law. So the focus is on the trafficking bill rather than the sex work law. So there are no assurances um, by the minister that in fact the ITPA will be repealed. Instead, there is simply reference to a standard non-abstantive clause which says where there is conflict between two provisions, between two laws, the trafficking bill will trump the ITPA. But that's not really adequate um, assurances uh, for, for sex workers. So I'll just conclude by uh, reflecting briefly on this uh, relationship between the international and the domestic because I think it's often assumed that um, uh, there is a unidimensional or uh, flow of power from international um, uh, policy developments to the domestic uh, level. And to some extent it's, it is true because um, you know obligations to enact anti-trafficking laws come from signing on to the trafficking protocol. Uh, I've also shown how the TIP reports in fact almost triggered a Swedish model in the Indian context. 
Um, and over time, as international opinion broadened the understanding of trafficking to go beyond sex trafficking, the Indian government pursued the same position. So in 2013, the standalone offense of trafficking actually is not restricted just to prostitution. It refers to other sectors as well. So there is some way in which, yes, uh, domestic jurisdictions take from the international domain. Um, and one has to always acknowledge the linkages fostered by what Akhil Gupta calls gov- global governmentality, whereby both domestic and international state and civil society players often interact with each other and with their counterparts from other countries in spaces of what Salimeri calls transnational modernity. Right? And they often derive legitimation from each other. So when the uh, two UN special rapporteurs on trafficking and contemporary forms of slavery criticized the 2018 trafficking bill, in fact, the minister... Uh, said, well, you know, in fact, when they presented um, the, the trafficking bill at a child labor conference in Argentina, many governments wanted to emulate the Indian model. So there's a way in which um, international developments, uh, uh, you know, influence what's happening domestically, but also the other way around. And, but also the soft power, which is uh, exercised by the international community has not always been well received by the Indian government. So I think uh, India, Brazil, many of these countries are similar in that sense. So for example, the government of India has long resented the TIP uh, ranking system and refuses to you know, fill out questionnaires circulated by the US government. It has also vigorously protested the reframing of trafficking um, in terms of modern slavery uh, and in fact has denied visas to uh, researchers from the Walk Free Foundation when they came to India to to produce the 2018 Global Slavery Index. Um, But what is interesting is for the most part, some of the most significant shifts in policy are often triggered by domestic developments. So so for instance, the the rape and murder of Jyoti Pandey was a domestic political opportunity. Similarly, once Section 370 was passed and we had a trafficking offence, it was a public interest lawsuit that really triggered the creation of uh, a new trafficking bill. So what I want to argue is that political opportunity, stru- political opportunity structures are resolutely local. Uh, and in fact, unlike in the West, trafficking in the Indian context has, has not captured the popular uh, imagination of the Indian public. Um, and this has, uh, you know, uh, so trafficking is a very niche uh, uh, issue in the policy sphere, which doesn't attract the same kind of attention that other issues do. So the relationship between the international and the national is quite a delicate dance, and it's quite contingent rather than being determinative. So I want to conclude by sh- uh, by just saying that um, anti-trafficking discourse has morphed considerably over the past 20 years, uh, with the term trafficking managing to do considerable work uh, in holding together quite disparate castral projects together. You know, it could be, it could be a, referral, a referent for, you know, uh, global supply chains. It could be something to deal with um, uh, uh, forced marriage. It could be used to discuss uh, sex trafficking. And the uh, dial on the sexual politics, however, has moved, but far less uh, compared to other issues of labor exploitation. And in the case of India, there's been some limited expansion of this understanding of trafficking to include bonded labor. Um, however, the castral imagination of the ITPA is, has been channeled through the new trafficking bill, uh, alongside a willful neglect on the part of the state to a very rich jurisprudence around forced labor and bonded labor. Um, and there is a politics of, of avoidance here to labor exploitation, but that is something uh, that I'm happy to, to explain um, uh, in the course of, of Q&A.